Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. Do you agree with the claim that men are being pushed away from the church? Yes, no, if so, why? Love to hear from you gentlemen. The number is 888-914-9149. Or you can answer that question on social media. Just follow me and answer the question at Timory, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, wherever you like to engage on social media, we are there. Okay, so coming up is the feast day of St. Patrick in a couple days here. Well known for the drinks people love to enjoy, corned beef and cabbage if you're in my house. St. Patrick's Day was always a really fun day, especially growing up. There were so many neat things we did uh, in our family on that day. It's a day uh, that we still really come together for. Uh, it was the last couple of years not being a home in California with my family for St. Patrick's Day. It was one of those disorienting moments because it's kind of one of those Catholic moments, at least that I grew up with, and how we bring the foods and the stories and the tradition and inspiring story of the saint into our home. So I want to talk about that over the next couple of days. Today joining me is Dr. Michael Foley. He's a professor of theology at Baylor University and Aquinas Institute. He's the author of 14 books, including Drinking with the Saints and Drinking with Saint Nick. We're going to unpack the life of St. Patrick, the man, the myth, and the legend. We'll talk about the real life story, how he, how he went from being a slave to bishop. A uh, little known fact that many people don't know, he actually wasn't Irish. So uh, without further ado, joining me now is Dr. Michael Foley. Dr. Foley, welcome to Trending. Thank you so much for having me, and please call me Mike. Thank you, Mike. Um, let's talk about St. Patrick. So tell us the story of St. Patrick. For those who don't know, and they commonly think about four-leaf clovers, three-leaf clovers, leprechauns, and drinking, what is the robust and inspiring story of St. Patrick? Well, he was, as you mentioned, uh, in England. That doesn't necessarily mean he was English in the way that we know it. He was a Celt living in Roman Britain, and at the age of 16, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and sold into slavery in Ireland. And he was there about six years. And during that period of enslavement, he was transformed. He became much more fervent in his spiritual life. And one night, he heard the voice of God say, it's time to go back home. And so he just got up, he walked 200 miles to the east coast of Ireland, flagged down a ship, crossed the Irish Sea, and went back home. He was reunited with his family, but, and then eventually became, through study on the continent of Europe, a priest and bishop. But he kept hearing the voices of the Irish in his head saying, come back and teach us. And so he received a commission from the Pope to become the missionary to Ireland, and the rest is history. 
It's incredible to think kind of going back, looking at some of that story. I mean, he was literally a slave taken to Ireland and everything you just shared, kind of in the Sparks Notes version of St. Patrick's story, he literally walked 200 miles in just to seek his freedom and to return home. Uh, That's very significant. And it's interesting because later on in the show, we're going to be talking about a question I was asked this week about why men are being pushed away from the church. And I think sometimes we allow that to happen because we don't know the stories of saints such as St. Patrick and truly the robust life that he lived. Oh, that's very true. Boy, the lives of the saints contain a lot of manly acts, to be sure. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about maybe some of the, the key key elements of his life that have stood out to you in particular that have inspired you to drill down a little bit more into his story. You know, the big surprise was, you know, because of St. Patrick's Day, we have such a sentimental view of the entire day. And we think of, oh, St. Patrick and the shamrock, and he drove the snakes out of Ireland. And now we, you know, we wear green on his day, and everything is hunky-dory. When you actually read his autobiography, which he wrote at the end of his life, it's a wake-up call. It's, um, it's not all sentimental. He has been successful. He has almost single-handedly converted an entire people from paganism to the true faith. And yet at the end of his life, you can kind of tell he's angry about a couple things. Uh, he, he has false brethren who are making all kinds of false accusations against him and his ministry. Uh, he misses his friends in Gaul where he had studied for the priesthood. He misses his family back in Britain. Uh, this is a real human being, not some plaster saint. I actually didn't even know that there was a, like a memoir of his own life that was written. Uh, it's something I would love to read and we'll have to drill down in on. How have we gotten this connection between um, this, what's become really a secular drinking holiday and yeah. St. Patrick? How do you think it turned into that? Well, it started with the Irish-Americans who always thought of St. Patrick's Day in terms of patriotism, that they were proud to be Irish. And so St. Patrick's Day was a day to celebrate being Irish in the face of, you know, Protestant oppression. So it was a declaration of Irish pride. And you could see how, since that already is kind of a secular note, how once you introduce that, then things can become even more secular by just turning it into a drinking party. And, and if it's a drinking party, well, now everyone wants to drink and not just the Irish. So I think that's the way it's spread. Yeah, and I think that's a kind of a neat element where we see what people call cultural appropriation coming into, you know, our country. And it's really, you know, a celebration of the Irish heritage that is Catholic and that Catholicity uh, that really is so deeply steeped within our nation in many ways. I mean, especially here in California, you know, we have many people who I, I find everyone I run into in California is either Catholic or a fallen away Catholic. And either way, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the evangelization of our faith. And one of the ways to 
do that is through turning to holidays, you know, drinking holidays such as St. Patrick's Day, uh, and to make that really that opportunity for talking about who he is within the home, within the family, with friends. Uh, St. Patrick's Day was always a really special uh, time for our family, uh, celebrating, you know, the different types of foods, a connection to Christ with St. Patrick. So talk to me about some of the neat foods uh, that are represented by St. Patrick's Day and really kind of give us a little glimpse of a catechesis as well. Well, the one that everybody knows about is corned beef and cabbage. They may be surprised to learn that that is only a thing in the United States that does not exist in Ireland. Interesting. I've always heard that's actually the poor man's food in Ireland. It's not really like the more common food. Is that so? Is it not one at all usually eaten in Ireland? No, no corned beef is a, is a Jewish invention. Uh, so it doesn't, it, it, in the 19th century, it didn't exist in Ireland. Maybe it does now, but uh, the thing is, in Ireland in the 19th century, pork was cheap, but beef was expensive. So you could never have beef. Instead, you had Irish bacon. In the United States, at the same time, it was the opposite. Beef was cheap, or at least cheaper than pork. And the Irish were living in these slums, and they were next to Jewish delicatessens. And the delicatessens had corned beef. The, the corn refers to uh, kernels of salt. It was salt-cured beef. And they thought, hey, this is pretty good. It tasted kind of like Irish bacon. And then they <laughs> added cabbage because it was an easy thing to do in the, these tenement slums. You could put your cabbage in a pot along with the corned beef and a single pot provided the whole meal. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get corned beef and cabbage. And I have mine defrosting so that I can marinate it. <laughs> I, my mouth is watering just thinking about corned beef and cabbage. I don't know why we only make it one time a year. This really needs to be a more common meal. It's like a glorified pot roast with a lot of yummy spices today. Uh, let's talk about some of the drinks that I know you like to encourage people to enjoy in honor of St. Patrick's Feast Day. There are no particular, I mean, I do recommend in my book, Drinking with the Saints, several books, several, several drinks, and I haven't had a drink yet, and I'm already getting it wrong. Um, there's something called an Irish ale cocktail. It's also known as an Irish mule because it's the Irish whiskey equivalent of the Moscow mule. That is a very good drink. Um, but, of course, the big thing is Guinness beer and Irish whiskey. Mm. Irish whiskey is a wonderful uh, genre of whiskey that has made a huge comeback in recent years. And I, I recommend to you and your listeners to get acquainted with, with a good Irish. And that is the proper use of the word. You, when Irish is a noun like that, it, can be, it signifies Irish whiskey in the same way that Scotch signifies Scotch whiskey. Mm. So those are your key key drinks for the day. You know, the first time I ever had a hot whiskey was actually in Ireland. Uh, delicious. Have you ever had one? No. You, oh, hot whiskey. It, was, it is what it sounds like. Yeah, it was hot whiskey, and it was kind of like with uh, like I think like a cinnamon stick and some other spices. Uh, it was so good, and then almost like an maybe an apple ciderish element to it. It was delicious and so warming, almost the way hot wine is warming in Ireland, or sorry, in Paris. That was warming there in in Ireland. Well, you know, I've only visited Ireland a couple of times, and one time it was during the winter, and I have been to colder areas of the world. 
but there was something about the Irish weather and that that Irish wind that just cut right through your clothes mm-hmm. and could chill you to the bone. So the the warmth of the pub and a hot whiskey sound really good. You're bringing me back to the days we studied abroad. I really just went on a trip to Europe with my school uh, in college. And I remember we were still taking finals and doing research papers. And there was no internet where we were staying. So it was 3 a.m. in the morning. We were sitting out in front of a pub that at that point was actually closed. And we had (laughs) blankets wrapped around us. And we had tea kettles, hot tea kettles that were being run up the road um, from the little house we were staying in and being placed on our laps because we were so cold and couldn't move our fingers as we were trying to meet the deadlines for our final papers um, for the end of the quarter. It was a memory to have there in Ireland, to say the least. Oh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the other things that are associated with St. Patrick. Uh, Shamrocks, and we know the teaching uh, that many people utilize on the Trinity also comes from St. Patrick as well. Yes, or maybe not. So the funny thing about the shamrock is he does not mention this in his autobiography. His earliest biographers from the Middle Ages don't mention it. The very first mention of Patrick using the shamrock to teach the Trinity is not until 1571. And it was by English botanists, no less. So, um, so there is something kind of sus uh, about this. The other consideration is, technically speaking, if he really did compare the shamrock to the Trinity, he is committing a heresy. <laughs> right. Yep. So explain that for those who maybe utilized the analogy and where it goes wrong. And because I think that's one of those challenges is that you have St. Patrick and then you have, in some ways, the myth and the legend of St. Patrick and then ways people try to pass on the story by appropriating um, Irish culture or the green of the culture to try and explain parts of our faith. So it is, I mean, it's, it's a useful starting point, but the problem with all analogies is they break down sooner or later, and this one tends to break down sooner rather than Quickly. later. Mm-hmm. If you want the best explanation, go to YouTube and type in Lutheran Satires St. Patrick. Uh, <laughs> Lutheran Satires is this bizarre group that makes hilarious videos and as a Catholic, I'm, I'm in stitches when I watch their stuff. But they have a hilarious send-up of St. Patrick being confronted about his analogies for the Trinity. Interesting. Interesting. Can you break it down for those who maybe have heard it and haven't? Maybe tried to use it, but maybe it's causing a little bit of confusion why that is. Because... I'm sorry, I'm thinking. You're asking me to talk about the Trinity, so I have to take a deep breath. (laughs) Um, All right, so I'm taking another deep breath. So here's the thing. What do we believe as Catholics about the three persons of the Trinity? We believe that the only way in which they differ is that the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, is not the Son. The only way they differ is in their distinctive personhood. That's not true of the leaves of a shamrock. They differ. It can be from, different shapes, sizes from the other three leaves of the shamrock. 
Absolutely. Um, and they are different leaves. They are different leaves that just happen to be, you know, mm-hmm. connected by the same stem. Right. Uh, and they're it's in like different like no locations. one snowflake's the same, right? You know, you make yeah. up this, this clover and you have this clover. And like the print, the idea for those who don't know the differentiation between the three leaves is, okay, there are three leaves, like one God, three persons, but those leaves aren't quite accurate. So for like a simple, simple explanation for a young child, Maybe that could be appropriate for a starter, but not moving forward when we know the technicality of understanding that distinction. That's exactly right. And also with the three leaves of the shamrock, one leaf did not beget a second leaf, and then those two leaves together spirate into existence a third leaf. In other words, the relations between the persons of the Trinity cannot be explained by the shamrock. So just to clarify for those who are wondering, why are you bashing on the shamrock and that use that people have attributed to St. Patrick? It's only because it doesn't qu- it doesn't fully explain, just like we can't fully explain um, the Trinity. We can go far in working our understanding toward the Trinity, but the great gift of our faith sometimes is, is that we understand God is a mystery, and there's so much to him that is a mystery. But at the same time, we do understand the distinction of persons defines those relationships. And like you said, those three leaves can't quite uh, define that that distinction of relationships and the fact that they are the same person. And so working through that, I think, is so important uh, when, you know, maybe we need to come past a childlike understanding of the Trinity. And that's a reason for us to talk about the Trinity another day here on Trending uh, as we kind of maybe bash away at one of those fundamental teachings. I think many Catholics have actually received, and for some, that's as far as it's gone in terms of uh, their education on the Trinity. So I think it brings to attention, Dr. Foley, uh, the fact that we need to challenge ourselves and sometimes we come Come to a point in our faith where we realize, you know, I really don't have much more than this simple childlike understanding, which is good to have as a foundation, but that is something that is such a great mystery to be pondered further. Oh, absolutely. And the, the Trinity is an endlessly fascinating mystery. And the more you move beyond the sort of crude analogies to contemplate it, the, the more beautiful and overwhelming you will find it. But also, let me be clear. Uh, St. Patrick should remain associated with the shamrock. It's an inseparable symbol now of his ministry. So we should continue to uh, have statues of St. Patrick with the shamrock. uh, If anything, it remains a symbol of the Irish people. And so Patrick holding the shamrock in his hand is is almost a symbol of his holding dear in the palm of his hand, the, the Irish nation. And I'm going to reference for those who maybe want to drill a little deeper on the Trinity. We piqued your curiosity. Uh, I hope you have a catechism of the Catholic Church. If you don't own one in your home, buy one. We'll post a link in the episode notes for today's show as well as on social media. But in the catechism of the Catholic Church, there are a number of paragraphs that break down the teaching on the Trinity. We'll have to dive into that uh, maybe this week on our Monday's Happy Hour because it's such an important topic. So make sure you join us on Monday. But if you go to Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 238 uh, and on, there is a rich, compact teaching 
on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So be sure to check that out. I'll post links to those specific paragraphs as well on my episode notes for today's show. That's Dr. Michael Foley today with us on Trending. Uh, Mike, talk to me more about St. Patrick, especially his connection to saints. This is or to snakes. This is one I've always loved because I hate snakes. When I read books to my two-year-old yeah. daughter and there's a snake in it for an animal, we hit the snakes because we don't like snakes. Oh, I, I kind of like them. They're interesting, except when they're venomous. Um, No, the truth is he didn't drive the snakes out of Ireland because there were no snakes to drive out, that snakes never made it to the island after the last ice age. There was an ice bridge connecting England to the rest of the continent, and three snakes, or three, three kinds of snake, were able to make it from the continent to England. But there was no ice bridge connecting England to Ireland, so they never made it. So there are a handful of major islands that are perpetually snake-free. New Zealand is one of them. I think Iceland and Greenland are also on the list, and, and Ireland is. On the other hand, it's still a good legend to have because he did indeed drive evil from the island, and mm-hmm. the snake is, of course, a good symbol of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Druids... The Druidic religion that the Irish had had was a very dark and sinister religion. Mm. It's a type of and witchcraft able, in many ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it was bad. Yes. Um, the, the, makes the Romans and the Greeks look good. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, uh, and so for him to overcome that was, was no small feat. I think of like the legend of Merlin. A lot of the time, those stories incorporate the Druids, right? And they are the witches and warlocks. I mean, that's how dark it is. I mean, human sacrifice. We're talking about so many horrible, horrible things. So I appreciate you making that reference that, you know, he, St. Patrick, we're destroying the man, the myth, and the legend here as we're knocking at some of these things he's traditionally known for. But those symbols are used for us as ways to learn about what he represented. And that's why it's so appropriate to teach kids about St. Patrick and to talk about the shamrocks and to talk about the snakes because the snake is that symbol of evil. That's part of the reason why I have my child hit the snakes in books because the (laughs) snake, the dragon, that's a symbol of Satan. And that's something very simple to be taught. Yes, indeed. But I hope one day you explain to your daughter that they are also literally God's creatures and we shouldn't drive them into extinction. (laughs) Spoken like a true environmentalist, right? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Foley... Go I go crunchy every now and then. <laughs> it's okay. Me too. I'm so crunchy. I'm crispy many days. Uh, that's a story for another day. <laughs> You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's when Dr. Michael Foley joining us. He's a professor of theology at Baylor University and Aquinas Institute. He's the author of 14 books, and he helps to bring the fun dimension of our faith into the light so that we can incorporate things people love to do in a wholesome way, drinking with the saints. So he has a book called Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick, and many others. We'll post a link on social media as well as the episode notes to some of these great books by Dr. Michael Foley. Thank you so much for joining us today on Trending. Coming up, I want to hear your answers to this question. Men, are men being pushed away from the church? If so, why? I was asked this question earlier in the week. It's a topic I often hear debated and discussed, especially by some of my closest friends, uh, really believing that there's kind of this pushing of men away from Catholicism and living out their faith. Why is that? We'll talk about that in just a moment and what to do about it. 
You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to our weekly Gentleman's Hour today on Trending. Do you agree or disagree with the claim that men are being pushed away from the church? If so, why? I want to hear your thoughts, gentlemen, on this. You can answer on social media or give me a call. In fact, let's start talking about it a little bit here. Uh, Matt from San Antonio, Texas is on the line. Matt, welcome to Trending. What do you think? Are men being pushed away from the church? Hello, Timory. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, good to hear from you. Um, So what are your thoughts? My thoughts, uh, to get right to it, is that there's really two things going on. The, the church isn't pushing men away, per se. Okay, so that, that's like, I don't see that happening. It's that, first of all, being a Catholic is not an easy um, protocol to implement. <laughs> Let's put it that way. In other mm-hmm. words, actually living out your Catholic beliefs is difficult. So, so that is, that is w- putting forth that kind of energy is not common to the experience of most men raised in America, and, and indeed in the Western world, if we're spe- specifically talking about men in the Western world. The second thing is, is that the popular culture, the um, zeitgeist or whatever, doesn't support Catholicism and Catholic values in people. It used to. Like, the, the Catholicism used to be a very strong force in American society and politics, say, 60, 70 years ago, but it's not anymore. So it's not supported. So, so a guy is swimming upstream against the current. And the other thing is, and this is really important, is that being a Catholic man very often is, is, is tied to being a married man, and then you also have children. That's considered both a duty and a, uh, you know, upwards of being a sacrament, right? But it's very hard for men who want to follow Catholicism to find a woman who wants to follow Catholicism. Catholicism is not popular among women, even, even um, uh, you know, women who say they're Catholic, they, who, who they themselves aren't going to be living out Catholic values and Catholic virtues from a woman's point of view. And it's very hard to find such a woman. So in other words, this is a very difficult thing if you're talking about men living as Catholic men. It's kind of like, it's the same kind of reason why most um, secular Jewish people don't want to become conservadox or orthodox. Mm-hmm. It's because mm-hmm. it's difficult to implement. It's a difficult lifestyle to go with, and you have to find someone who is willing to go with it with you. So and it sounds not like an what, easy thing to do. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're saying, yes, you agree that men are being pushed away from the church, but it's both uh, the culture as well as what's happening in terms of the way just as a universal body, um, people are living out the Catholic Church's um, practice, you know, the Catholic faith to begin with. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be somehow attractive. In order for a religion to really take hold anywhere, it has to, one, be attractive to people for some reason, and two, easily implemented. That mm-hmm. is why religions mm-hmm. that require very little of people for conversion tend <laughs> to spread the fastest. 
Yeah. Okay. And I think in so some ways that's, that's why Buddhism is so popular today because people love the practice of yoga. You can go to your yoga class. So that's your spirituality. You're spiritual, not religious. You go and get your exercise in and boom, you've done your thing for the week. And people sometimes fall into yoga not thinking of it originally as a religion, but it is. And if you're questioning me about yoga and religion, maybe you're feeling a little offended right now. We've actually done a number of episodes on this specific topic. It's actually fascinating. I've been there. I've done yoga before. I had no idea why it was an unexamination of conscience, why it was problematic. So listen to those episodes. I'll link them on social media as well as the episode notes because uh, it's an important topic. Um, but coming back to your comments, Matt, because I think they're really important. You're recognizing that the secular culture we live in is not conducive with living out your Catholic faith as a man. And you mentioned this particularly because it's it does Catholicism is basically associated with being a husband and a father and having a family. Well, feminism, I would argue, is the reason why men feel pushed away from living a Catholic identity today. Why they argue that Catholicism has become feminized, that they feel effeminate if they are uh, l kind of living out any type of Catholic faith or try to. And I get it. Even some of the Catholic men's groups today, I mean, seem very feminized. Uh, my husband decided, and he really hates men's conferences, Catholic men's conferences, but he was convinced to go to one last year. And he showed up at the Catholic men's conference. He showed up, you know, a little later, maybe an hour or so into the day. And he shows up and the speaker has told all the men to stand, you know, within five minutes of him getting there, to stand, face each other, hold hands, and tell the other man they're looking at, you are loved, you are accepted, you are wonderful, you are forgiven. And I'm sorry, but I'm not even into that stuff as a woman. And, you know, some people, yeah, maybe they're into that. But there is very much so one of those moments where I think a lot of men uh, go to some Catholic groups or Catholic conferences and they're very turned off by it. And it's a problem. I think that we've lost what the masculine virtue of our Catholic faith is in the 21st century. And that's because of feminism. You said that it had to do with men being husbands, fathers, and family men. Well, today, the error of our time, according to the feminist movement, according to toxic feminism, because that's what it is, has rejected virginity and motherhood and being a wife. And therefore, it has rejected any type of virtue coming into a marital relationship. It has rejected the very idea of what marriage is for, that is, the procreation and education of children, and it's rejected even the idea of committing to being a spouse. And so all of these things are an automatic knock on what it means to be a man. But I think it goes a lot further than that, even with a feminist movement, in that it's simple. Why are men being pushed away from the church? And if you have a thought on this, I'd love to hear from you. The number is 888-914-9149. Do you agree or disagree? I was asked this by Christopher to talk about this on the show today. Why are men being pushed away from the church? By the way, fun fact, somewhat funny. Uh, Christopher said that trending is too girly and <laughs> it's a women's show. I would strongly disagree with that. So if you have an opinion, you think that we covered too many female topics, I'd love to hear from you. Grant, yes, we talk about motherhood. We talk about fertility and the crisis. Uh, but I did think that was interesting. So if you would like to hear more topics during our weekly Gentleman's Hour, let me know because, Christopher, I'm happy to cover this. And if you give us more than maybe 10-minute listen, you will hear we are not really a women-only show at all. Uh, quite the contrary. But I did find that fascinating. So 
Agree or disagree? Why are men being pushed away from the church? Do you think they're being pushed away from the church? So here's the deal. This isn't just feminism. It is feminism. But what's behind feminism? The feminist movement hates the church, hates the idea of fatherhood, of husbands, of male leadership. Why? Because it's a goal of Satan for men to be uninspired to fill their God-given mission. It is the goal of Satan for men to be uninspired to fill their God-given mission. That What's that God-given mission? To be leaders, protectors, and providers. To be, as we know in the church's teaching, that priest, prophet, and king that all baptized Christians are called to, but men in a very special way as leaders, protectors, and providers. Yesterday, here on Trending, we were talking about the importance of motherhood. It's a very pro-life conversation because there's been a severing between mother and child, the natural biological rhythm the two go through, the importance of women having the space to be home with their children. But what was fascinating in that conversation when we were talking about men, we're actually talking about how men release more of the protective hormone vasopressin, which vasopressin helps a father to protect his child. A man is hardwired biologically to protect his children. But a man is hardwired not just biologically, but spiritually and intellectually is called to lead, protect, and provide for his family, for himself, for his faith and growing and fostering it. But again, it's the goal of Saint for men to be uninspired. And I think that that's why, um, unfortunately, we see a lot of leaders in our church not really doing the best job of appealing and calling men into their mission to lead, protect, and provide. So we live in a culture where we have to ask the question, who will hold men accountable when... They aren't finding the accountability that they need or even desire in the church environments that they're in. Well, I think that it comes back to that word accountability. We're all accountable for how we live out our faith. You want more? You think the Catholic Church is feminine? You think that there's a lack of encouragement for men in the church? Yeah, I get that. I would agree. But that doesn't mean there isn't an incredible opportunity for inspiring men, inspiring relationships, growing in faith. You just have to seek out those leaders. Seek out those leaders who inspire you as men. Seek out those leaders who can befriend and mentor you in your faith. We have to be accountable for our own growth. And I think this is part of the challenge of free will, that great gift that God gave us that sometimes we really wish we just didn't have, is that we have the freedom in terms of how far we will develop and cultivate our faith. And other people who are in leadership positions in the Catholic Church also have the freedom in terms of how much they will cultivate men in the faith. And as I said before, the goal of Satan is for men to be uninspired to fill their God-given mission to lead, protect, and provide. And so, That freedom and that failure to live up to what we're called to, we fail at seeking out what we're accountable for and growing our faith, specifically men, and leaders tend to fail in meeting that duty at times. That's what all leaders can be, can fail at, whether it's leaders of the family, leaders in businesses. This is our fallen human nature. We are responsible for our own lives, though, and standing up and speaking up. I think of, for example, the story of Jonah and the whale. We all know that story. God asked Jonah to do something. Jonah doesn't want to do it. 
he runs from God all the way to the point where he jumps on a ship trying to avoid God. And, and as the story goes, Jonah is eaten by a whale. Why is this a story in the, in the inspired word of God? The Holy Spirit wrote this story, Jonah and the whale. It's in the Bible. Why? Well, I think it's because of this specific question. You know, people would love to complain, why are men being pushed away from the church? I agree in many ways. They are. We need to do something about it. But Jonah was asked to do something to change the culture he lived in. He didn't want to. He ran away. And maybe not all of us are literally going to be swallowed up by a, a whale and then finally say, okay, God, I'll do your will and be spat out. But what that story does represent is that even in the messiness of our culture we live in, gentlemen, you still have to lead. You're given, even if it's basic and adequate catechesis at times, you're accountable for owning your faith, for seeking out that formation. And I get it. The complaints are legitimate when it comes to what's happening in terms of the feminization and the effeminacy within the church at times. Everyone loves to make a joke about Susan from the church council on Twitter. If you don't know that Twitter account, look it up. You'll know why people laugh about it. Uh, they love to talk about the bad music, the irreverent prayers, the disrespect that can occur on the part of priests and other people in church. But at the end of the day, I get it. It's frustrating for me to do too. We're there at Mass to be consumed by our Lord Jesus Christ, not just to be consumers. Even though we go to receive our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, we don't go to get God. We go to be consumed, to offer our bodies on that altar as part of the offering that will be transformed into the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're uniting ourselves, our sacrifice with God. But I come back to the legitimacy, I would argue, of where men are really struggling today. Men are truly struggling because it's angering to see what happens when there's a lack of formation and inspiration and proper functioning within our Catholic Church. There's a lot of going on in terms of the crisis within the church today. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, Dr. Philip Chavez, about how angry many men are today about what's happening in the church. And he was talking about the legitimacy of this and about how men are more naturally oriented toward being upset and angered by dysfunctioning systems. That women tend to be more upset by relationships and how things are going within the context. But men in particular can be angered by the dysfunction of those systems that occur. And I think there's a legitimacy to that. If there's a difference in terms of how we react to the crises and challenges and difficulties in the church and what we react to, it's because we have gifts, men as men and women as women. And we're called to defend and protect the church and to live out our faith if you are a man as a man and if you are a woman as a woman. And so if there's something that's irking you and upsetting you within the church, well, make the changes you want to see. Be that change you want to see. I think of St. Catherine Drexel, who came from the United States, went to Pope Leo XIII, talking about all these different things she wanted to change, asking the Holy Father to take care of them. And he basically looked at her and said, well, what about you? Why don't you do it? And I think that that's the same exact uh, lesson that God is giving us right now. There's a lot, there are a lot of things we could complain about with regard to what's happening in the church, but there's much that we have to do 
gifts we have to offer to the church in terms of the way we live out our faith. I was even just thinking, for example, I've had this exact conversation many times with our good friend of the show here on Trending, Jim O'Day from Integrity Restored. And he says this is why when he goes to a new church, whenever he's in whatever church he's at, he starts the St. Joseph's group. It's a once a month meeting with a couple of his buddies. They invite the priest and they take the priest out to dinner. It's so that they can have an influence on the priest. The priest can have an influence on them. They can have this brotherhood. You see, this is really fundamental, and I've learned this especially over the last handful of years. Men need other men to grow. That's why I think some people are so angered by men's groups that don't meet their needs. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Men need to be called into their mission by other men. They need that challenge. They need that competition. They need that aggression. These are all good things. We've talked a lot about this. The culture, the feminist culture today tends to reject it. The church does need to focus on forming men as heads of their homes, heads of the domestic church. But we can't just wait around for the church to be more welcoming and bring men in. We have to be those models we want to see and look to those inspiring men or those here on earth, or those in heaven, Christ, St. Joseph, the saints. Read the inspiring books of the stories of the Maccabees, the Psalms, the writing of St. Paul. They're incredibly inspiring for men. Have you read those is one of my questions when men ask and complain about what's happening in the church. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. It's an important topic if you missed it. Why are men being pushed away from the church? Agree or disagree? I'd love to hear your thoughts still, so feel free to send me an email, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. It's a topic that needs to be continue to be discussed, developed, uh, entertained, because a lot of men do think this is what's happening. And the question is, where do we go from here? Uh, So that's a conversation we've been having today on Trending. If you missed it, be sure to catch the podcast, relevantradio.com forward slash Trending. And I want to talk now about just such sad news, but really, really good uh, step in the battle for life in the state of Texas. We just saw the very first lawsuit in Texas implementing the law that we know there uh, that was put into place back in 2021, the abortion law that under the law of Texas, a person who assists a pregnant woman in seeking to obtain an abortion, uh, that that person can actually be sued for wrongful death. So it protects the mother who seeks the abortion, but anyone who aids and abets that abortion, someone who would drop a woman off an abortion clinic, someone who would help her in accessing abortion drugs, as someone who would encourage her to have an abortion, those people can be sued for wrongful death. But who are they sued by? They are sued by fellow citizens there in the state of Texas. This was just a groundbreaking, incredible law that was implemented back in September of 2021. Here's the deal. It scared people out of trying to do and live out the pro-abortion culture we live in in the state of Texas. Texas is really ground zero right now with regard to what's happening on the abortion front. They are fighting so hard against the RU46 abortion pill. But here's what's interesting. And gentlemen, it's our weekly gentlemen's hour. So I do want you to see uh, just the important role you men play as fathers in the fight against abortion in so many different ways. So here's what happened. 
A man who has gone through a divorce uh, has said that his wife last year, now ex-wife, was pregnant. She hid her pregnancy from her husband. And what happened is two of her friends started advising her about to get an abortion and started conspiring with her, allegedly, uh, to have a chemical abortion. A third woman allegedly helped to transport the abortion drugs to her in July, and she therefore had the abortion and very sadly uh, killed their baby. The father wanted that baby. The father is suing, as soon as he found out, uh, is suing uh, for wrongful death under the pro-life Texas state law that allows a citizen to sue someone who helps to aid and abet someone in getting an abortion. And so it'll be really fascinating. It's the first of its kind where we've seen a lawsuit come forward. And it'll be really interesting to see how this case plays out. Uh, It's important that we have cases like these because we know that what is legal, people believe is moral. And we have had legal abortion for the last 50 years. Now we need to reclaim the culture to help them understand there's a reason why abortion is legal in a good, illegal in a good number of states. And this, there's a reason why we are called to conform to that law because it's a good law that protects and respects women, women's bodies, women's psychological health, mental health, and the life of the baby is respected and protected. So I'll be fascinated to see how this all plays out. Um, here's the deal. Uh, we are seeing that there are a lot of comments uh, behind what's happening here in the state of Texas with this lawsuit coming forward. Uh, Briscoe Kane is the attorney that's working this lawsuit for Mr. Silva, who is the father of the baby who was killed via abortion. And Briscoe Kane made this comment about uh, lawsuits coming forward with regard to abortion. Um, he's really making it clear that there are a number of lawsuits that are going to be coming on the front of abortion. He said anyone invo- involved in distributing or manufacturing abortion pills will be sued into oblivion. Kane then said that includes CVS and Walgreens if their abortion pills find their way into our state. So Briscoe Kane is saying you'll be sued into oblivion if you try to help someone in getting an RU-46 abortion pill abortion. Because here's the deal. In states where abortion is being less uh, accessible, has been made illegal, what the pro-abortion movement's trying to do is they're trying to slide as many chemical abortion drugs into that state as possible from overseas, from other states. So one of the conversations that's been had is now that our horribly pro-abortion president, President Biden, has allowed through deregulation of a very damaging abortion pill, he's allowed for CVS, Walgreens, and Rite Aid to carry the abortion RU486 abortion pill. We're now seeing that states such as Texas are cracking down saying, no, you can't even give any access. Someone cannot transport that into our state. And they're putting CVS and Walgreens on notice. Do not even try to ship this into our state. The attorney generals in the individual states are writing letters and have written letters to the abortion providers, specifically letting them know, as well as CVS and Walgreens, which are now abortion providers, they cannot in any way allow their abortion drugs to come into the pro-life states. So one of the pro-abortion arguments that was made 
uh, with regard to Texas and this lawsuit of this man suing these three women who allegedly helped his wife to kill their child via abortion. One of the arguments from one radical pro-abortion toxic feminist group uh, said this, that Christians are behind the pro and pro-life argument. And she says that Christian intention has always been clear, that their intention is to take the right away from women in all circumstances. So she's claiming that Christians are at the forefront of pro-life movement. Yes, we are. We're here and we're not going anywhere because women deserve better than abortion and babies should not be killed. But she makes two claims, that women should have a right to abortion and that Christians are denying women this, and that women should have a right to abortion in all circumstances. What happened to the whole safe, legal, and rare argument? Well, that went out the door. Uh, but here, in, if you want to hear kind of a little bit of a response to that, I'll talk about that tomorrow in Trending, this whole safe, legal, and rare argument and why that's no longer the argument being made today, but it's something we still need to talk about because the majority of Americans who are pro-abortion still believe in safe, legal, and rare, but we're going to totally knock that on its back tomorrow here on Trending. So here's the deal. There's no right to abortion. There's no such thing as a license to kill another innocent human being, no matter the reason. A law to kill is absolutely unfathomable unfathomable in any culture. When weird religions have done things such as child sacrifice, this isn't what this isn't what was something that was ever acceptable. And in fact, it was what the Christians brought into the conversation that they helped prevent and stop children's sacrifice in pagan areas. You see, a law that is a license to kill, such as an abortion, is a result of a post-Christian era that degrades the human person. A person, a baby, should never be a means to another person's end, whether it be they want to get a career, an education, good health. They desire to do X, Y, and Z. They want different circumstances before they have a child. That's the disposal of another human being, a baby, for our own whim, our own desires for our own convenience, even for our own health. Since when do we think it's okay to kill another human being for any of those reasons? We need to retake back that culture that has always been pro-life in this great nation and why those pro-life laws have been there and we need to continue to uphold them and support them and help others in coming around to the authentic pro-woman, pro-life position. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Thursday is our weekly marriage hour, and I'm going to talk about the important role confession plays in our marriages and dating relationships as we discern marriage. Also, I'll talk about maternity homes. If you don't know what a maternity home is, you need to know this is the front line of the pro-life movement, and it truly is helping save babies and save the lives of moms and their families. So join me daily, 6 p.m. Central, on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.